0: Publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, and I'll be your host today. This is the 50th anniversary year of one of the most politically and socially volatile years in this nation's history. 1968 was the year of the tragic assassinations of Martin Luther King, Jr. and Robert Kennedy. Disagreements over the Vietnam War fractured the Democratic National Convention, while thousands of anti-war protesters battled the Chicago police outside the convention doors. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 was passed, prohibiting the discrimination in housing based on race, religion, national origin, or sex. Today on Noon Edition, our panelists will reflect on those issues and, and more on the year 1968 and the Civil Rights Movement. And we have Three guests two who are joining me in the studio. Jim Sims is here. He's a member of the Bloomington City Council. And he's also the Monroe County NAACP president. John McCluskey is a professor emeritus of African American and African Diaspora Studies and Diaspora Studies. And he has also um, he was also teaching in Birmingham in 1968 during the MLK assassination. And Ray Buhmauer is the author and senior editor of the Indiana Historical Society Press. And Ray is joining us by phone from Indianapolis because of today's weather. You can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 or toll free at one 877 285 989348 And you can also email us uh, your questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So after that lengthy uh, introduction, I want to bring Ray in first. Uh, first from Indianapolis, and, and Ray, could you, uh, as a historian, can you sort of set the stage for you know 1968 as uh, a year that people are a lot of a lot of a uh, lot of the press anyway has said it was a, a year that changed things in, in America.
1: It was quite a tumultuous time in American politics and I think if you were a novelist and you were trying to write a book about that year and all the political changes that came about and you submitted it to your editor, they might send it back to you saying this is too unrealistic, no one would ever believe it. Uh, Most people expected that uh, Lyndon Johnson would once again be the Democratic candidate for president, but it was a year that saw Eugene McCarthy A U.S. senator from uh, Minnesota start his insurgency against uh, Johnson and his uh, attempt to become president again. You had all these young college students, you know, cut their beards off, cut their hair, and go clean for Gene. You had Bobby Kennedy jumping in the race after McCarthy's strong showing in New Hampshire. You had Lyndon Johnson announcing he would no longer be a candidate. You had, of course, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, uh, followed by Kennedy's rousing and uh, memorable speech in Indianapolis on April 4th announcing King's death. You had Robert Kennedy's eventual assassination following the California primary, all the violence and uh, turmoil at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, so it was quite a year if you're writing about politics in American history.
0: You know, aside from politics, it was also a cultural revolution in a lot of ways. I mean, it was uh, you know, one of the year, the 60s were, you know, were closing, closing up, but the 60s were sort of a cultural revolution as well.
1: That's true. Uh, you had all these, uh, I think, young college students, you know, this was their last maybe gasp at working within the system to change things and I think uh, there were a lot of disappointed young people following the Democratic National Convention. Maybe many lost faith uh, in uh, the political system in America at that time and uh, might have turned to other ways to change uh, the system because of that.
0: John McCluskey, you were in Birmingham during 1968, so what, what was life like in Birmingham in 1968? Uh,
2: It was a strange place to be. I had come to Birmingham, believe it or not, from San Francisco. So in San Francisco, I had on the one hand, the Panthers, and on the left hand, I had the uh, Haight-Ashbury District. So I was seeing some of that close up. Coming to Birmingham, I didn't know what to expect. It was my first time in the Deep South. Um, It was the time, the few years after Bull Connor and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in the Kelly Ingram Park. Um, you mentioned the the year of sixty eight. If you can bear with me for just a second, I'd like to give you a week in nineteen sixty eight. Um, I was traveling f- on spring break from uh, Boston to back to Birmingham, and stopped in New York to uh, talk with one of my heroes, Ralph Ellison, the writer. And um, I was elated. I got on the, in my car. I had no money. I was going to go all the way back to Birmingham. And uh, that night, driving back, I got the announcement, heard the announcement that America heard, and that was that uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson was not gonna run for president, and I was shocked at that. A few days later, I got a call from a former roommate in San Francisco who was crying on the phone saying that King had been assassinated, and walked out, and on the lawns of the houses around me were people just shocked, just walking around, not knowing quite what to do. Two days later, I was asked to be to represent Miles College in Birmingham at a uh, planning meeting for a memorial march, and I recognized going into that room that many of the men in that room were men addressed by King in his letter, famous letter to the Birmingham from the Birmingham Jail, and that threw me for a loop. Uh, but the most riveting thing, and this is again all in one week, uh, on a Sunday afternoon, we were told to march from Kelly Ingram Park where the Dogs and the hoses were in the early '60s uh, to uh, a downtown plaza, and we were told you could not sing, and so there was a silent march. And on each corner, uh, two corners of the four corners of every intersection, there were uh, armed policemen with high-powered rifles. And so, what I recall from that '68 very clearly now is the sound of feet trudging down the streets of Birmingham to get to that plaza. Where a um, where a um, a program would take place. Irony of ironies, of course, is that uh, a few years later, Richard Arrington, who was dean of the college in Miles at that time, became mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, the first African-American mayor. So it was a, 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 a very strange. The word tumultuous has already been used, but it was a topsy-turvy time. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Jim and I were talking about. You know, we were both. Um, in our, we were in, in schools, and uh, Jim was in Muncie, Indiana, and I was at a small town close to Muncie. Uh, what, what was life like? What do you remember about 1968 and in that time period, Jim?
3: Um, well, I recall that I was about 11, 12 years old, um, and as we talked earlier, um, I was a young man full of testosterone. Um, <laughs> probably wasn't as uh, educated on everything as, as I thought at the time, um, but I do remember that there were many acts of of, of racism and and acts of violence. And um, I shared with you that um, during my high school years, we had a race riot every year and two my junior year. Um, And a lot of this had to do with the the social injustices and and trying to work through all of those things. Um, So so that's what, and, and probably one of the most important things that I remember is that there was more actions um from a a social justice standpoint or or the view of that than just dr martin luther king Mm -hmm. um i was of the other ilk um um, i was more of a a black panther malcolm x um not none of this you know let's just take it it's all about self-defense we're not about passive um resistance so that sort of thing um now I've since grown and understand, and have seen the light on, on how you can best work through that um, and, and try to do that with my um, um, activities at the NAACP. But at that time, um, things could have turned out much, much differently in my life, I'm sure, and particularly if I, we weren't in Indiana. Let's say if I was further down south or something, um, I think my attitude, it, there would have been a much different version of Jim Sims' life. To this day. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we're kind of happy
3: with you the way well, you are. So. Well, thank you.
0: <laughs> well, sure. Uh, I want to give you uh, our phone numbers. If you have memories of 1968, or you have questions about 1968, we. You know, it's been 50 years ago now, so there are a lot of people who uh, weren't here in that year, or who really don't understand the significance, of the the how this country changed in 1968. Please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also email us questions news at indiana public media dot org, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Uh, Ray Boomauer, So we you know we've, we've talked a lot. I mean, we've talked, you know, about racial injustice and racial things that were going on, but the Vietnam War was also really heating up. There was a lot of unrest on college campuses. Could you uh, just sort of take us through that a little bit?
1: That's true, and and that's one of the key memories that I took from 1968. I was uh, a little bit younger than most of the people on the panel today. I was about nine years old, uh, living in Mishawaka, Indiana. But I have clear memories of watching news reports, Walter Conkright, Chet Hunkley, and David Brinkley uh, reports from Vietnam and seeing actual fighting on my TV screen in my home on Patel Street uh, and watching uh, the action, seeing the riveting news from uh, the uh, Tet Offensive uh, in Vietnam where everything seemed to be crashing down in spite of all the optimistic um, you know, proposals and uh, sayings and reports from the Johnson administration. And I was uh, really too young to understand it all, uh, but later I could very well understand how this could inflame and enrage young people who were so against the war on college campuses across the country. And I think that was the appeal of Eugene McCarthy. Here was this calm a uh, poet-loving politician who was so unlike Lyndon Johnson, and he you know stood up and said he was going to you know put an end to the fighting in Vietnam, and that's what I think drew so many uh, young people to change their parents and uh, go out and uh, barnstorm uh, around uh, the small towns in New Hampshire on his behalf, and uh, he was someone who uh, you know stood up and said you know this should not go on any longer that was a large part of his appeal uh, to these college students throughout the country.
0: just want to react to, to a couple of things you said for those who uh, you know, weren't around. And the Tet Offensive started January 30th, and it was a series of surprise attacks by communist forces across Vietnam, and it really showed how badly the war was going for the United States. At the time, um, on uh, CBS, you talked about watching the news because this the war was brought into people's living rooms as, as no right. war had been before. And on CBS on February 27th, uh, Walter Cronkite, who was trusted by everyone, it seemed, to tell it like it was, um, basically said to say say that we are mired in a stalemate seems the only realistic yet unsatisfactory conclusion he basically was calling out the the government that was saying oh no things are going well and walter finally right. said no they're really not
1: <laughs> right i i remember reading his uh, you know kind of behind the scenes comment after seeing all this footage come in from the you know american embassy under attack in, in, in uh, saigon saying you know what, what the hell's going on? I thought we were winning, you know? He's been led to believe that,
0: uh, mm-hmm.
1: like so many others.
0: Yeah, John, what do you recall about the war at that time?
2: Uh, they, well, there, there was the issue of the draft that all yeah. of us in, in school or graduate school were concerned with, um, but uh, there seemed to be all these wars that were flaring up around the world. Uh, there was San Francisco, there was Birmingham, there, were, there would be Newark and Detroit. Um, there'd be Asia, and uh, King was one of the few people who tried to link them in some way. And that's one of the lessons I take from the 60s was this notion of uh, being a globalist. King was noted for the civil rights era in um, the United States. Uh, In a larger frame, he was dealing with human rights around the world. And he gave a speech almost to the day of his assassination a year before in New York, where he talks about Vietnam and the interesting thing about that is that people uh, on both sides were saying, well, why are you talking about Vietnam? We, we have civil rights. We have issues of busing and motels and hotels. And why are you talking about this? And he began to link the so-called local fires with what was happening in the world. And, and the globalism of African-American leadership, the globalism of the feminist movement, the globalization of so many movements today, uh, I see owe oh, a great deal to the fires that we saw in the 1960s. So it, it forced a lot of us to begin to think beyond our own shadows and begin to talk about injustices around the world and how they link to one another. Um, A friend of mine has written a a, a very important short story called uh, Dr. King's Refrigerator, and uh, it's fiction, but King gave a speech once where he talked about the fact that when you sit down to breakfast and you begin to talk about the products out before you on on, on breakfast, whether grits or eggs or, or, or what have you, Uh, And you begin to dress to go to work, that these uh, garments, these products come from all over the world. And they make us uh, very interdependent to one another. And we tend to forget that, uh, to have forgotten that then and certainly now in terms of how we uh, are wedded and bound to one another. So when you ask a question about Vietnam, it had uh, ripple effects in terms of our society, in terms of the vets who came back in terms of how we treated the vets, how we treated one another around the war issue, and it's still with us today. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to move a little bit through the year to April 4th, the day that, that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And
3: uh, Jim, what, what do you remember about that day? Um, in most our home, like most African-American homes, um, and I think John can kind of relate to this, uh, and maybe even you, Bob, um, but we always had, pictures on the wall, and one of those pictures was of the image of Jesus Christ, the image of Martin Luther King, and at the time, of President John F. Kennedy. Um, So you can imagine um, how it felt in our household, in our community, um, in our church um, when that happened. That was just unbelievable to us. You know, I'm not so sure we didn't really understand it. You could kind of see it coming with all of the vicious violence um, that we had witnessed, Um, uh, some some of our own activity and interactions of of that nature. uh, but it, I still had to go to baseball practice the next day. And right. I also right. had to go through this neighborhood, and I won't name it, um, In our, and we had to go through that neighborhood in, in order to get to practice. So me and another African-American friend, we'd ride through that every day with dogs chasing and rocks. Um, so either I loved baseball or um, that was just kind of the way it was. <laughs> right. um, and not to minimize that, because um, I... I kind of looked at it a little bit differently. We were talking about Vietnam, that was not on my radar. Um, There was a couple things. One thing, we did have family members that went there, but there was reports of rampant racism and lack of being able to get promoted and being sent into the most dangerous situations, Um, and many of them came back in in body bags. Um, And I also remember... um, Muhammad Ali refusing induction, um, which we could identify with as <laughs> you know uh, on that sort of thing um, but it was it was horrible um, I do remember um, my grandmother cried I mean I, and I, I didn't get that at the time, but actually cried um, and years later I think um, I, I understood much much more
0: mm-hmm. uh, Ray, if you could talk about what was going on in Indiana on uh, April 4th, because it was a, that was a really historic day in our state. Yes.
1: It was, and where I think should get more attention, of course, on April 4th, Robert Kennedy had started his campaign <clears throat> in Indiana for the Democratic presidential primary. This was the first primary available for him to run in after he announced his uh, goal of winning the Democratic nomination for the presidency. He had started his day up in South Bend at the University of Notre Dame was in uh, Muncie, Indiana, giving a speech at the men's gym at uh, Ball State. And he was on his way to Indianapolis to open up his new campaign headquarters and also to give a campaign rally speech at 17th and Broadway Streets uh, near uh, the near north side of Indianapolis. And he was leaving Muncie when he heard the news that King had been shot and learned that King had died when he reached Indianapolis. And there was a lot of pressure on him to cancel that speech because of fear that violence might break out when uh, people heard the news that King had died we forget today with instantaneous communication that uh, you know news didn't travel as fast back then as it does now and uh, those who were gathered at the rally site many had not heard yet the news about King's death but uh, John Lewis who was there signing up voters uh, at the rally site said you know Kennedy has to come. He has to let these people know what happened or there really is going to be trouble. So, King gave I mean, Kennedy gave, uh, I think, one of the best extemporaneous speeches in American political history that evening uh, in Indianapolis, telling the crowd uh, that King had died, but urging them to remain calm and uh, to uh, leave peacefully, and um, said these words What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence or lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or they be black. And he gave kind of a hopeful view of what was going to go on in the future, saying that the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and one justice for all human beings who abide in our land. And after hearing this approximately six-minute speech, the crowd dispersed peacefully. And although there were rioting and violence in a lot of American cities, uh, there was peace in Indianapolis after that that evening.
0: Mm-hmm. And if uh, Jim, you, and, and John could talk a little bit about about Dr. King's legacy today, I mean, we're 50 years later, and we a lot of these issues are still with us to a certain degree. Um, so I, I don't know that I have a very succinct question, but can you just talk about Dr. King's legacy and how the fight still continues?
2: I often wonder about that. That King uh, was a very young man, and, and what's shocking this is when we begin to think of, he was less than 40 years old, and he lived the life of three men. Um, and it'd be interesting to know where he would be today, and, and you can only speculate on that. Uh, but his legacy, again, I go back to the notion of interdependence, um, his legacy of being a humble. He never praised himself as a stable genius. Um, he need not do it, and stable geniuses, wherever they are and wherever they have been, are noted for what they do, not what they brag about. He never bragged, he was a modest man, um, and, and a very humble man, but he would be the first to tell us, in terms of this legacy notion, going back to that, that he stood on the shoulders of, of people whose names never reached the newspapers. And um, he knew that the media had sort of targeted him as a spokesman, but he also knew there were hundreds and thousands of people who um, walked those dusty roads of the South, who sang those songs when they marched in the South. And he would honor them in terms of the cadence of his speech, he would honor them in terms of his love and his, his compassion. One of the stories I like um, to, to, to go back to is uh, it, was a, it was a rural I think, church in Alabama or Mississippi, and a woman of age had walked to hear him, uh, and she had no car, but she'd walked many miles, and uh, after the talk, uh, King was talking to her and said, uh, well, Miss um, so-and-so, uh, you walked many miles to hear, hear my little speech, and she said, well, yes, 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 but my, my, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. And what King wanted to do was to rest the souls and honor the souls of the people out there to, uh, to, um, to, to fight and struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. And that struggle still goes on. And um, even though we may disagree at some times in terms of his tactics, his strategy, or his tactics, I should say, um, that is a never-ending ending goal for, uh, for people uh, in this country. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and Jim, as president of the local chapter of the mm-hmm. NAACP, I mean, this has to have relevance to you too.
3: Um, very much so. And um, a legacy, and, and I'm like, John, I've given that much thought, and it's hard for me to put that in a, a paragraph, for an example. It's, it's, it's wide-ranging. Um, but I tend to look more toward the enforcement of the constitutional rights, um, as opposed to separate a bunch of things. Um, let's look at that, because that is supposed to govern all people. Um, from a social justice standpoint, so I tend to to look at that and how King always either legally or immorally, and let 's not forget he was a fiery Baptist preacher, so there was some scripturally <laughs> things going on as well, um, but it all led to peace and love and and, and togetherness um, and, you know, just social fairness um, but a broad legacy um, Dr. King. And again, we've spoken of this earlier. I was not a supporter of the (laughs) nonviolent, passive approach. And I always wondered, how could you allow your supporters, people in the march, um, and this isn't 68, but the Bull Connors and the dogs and the fire hoses and all of that, Mm -hmm. how could that happen? Um, And at the same time, while he was keeping that together, there was also the Black Panthers um, and some of the other movements. And even at that time, I think SNCC, um, mm-hmm. um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee was moving toward mm-hmm. a, a more black separatist um, self-defense mode and, and how they can kind of keep everything together while it was starting to separate. Um, but probably the biggest thing is that I think we need to remember that the time of civil rights movement, that was, uh, it was very empowering. Or, or blacks and African Americans, um, but yet it was a very precarious time um, in America. Um, there was uh, the efforts of the activists and the, and the protesters end up bringing legislation and laws, um, things to end segregation, um, the, the sit ins, um, that sort of thing, which brought awareness to that. Um, and I remember seeing a lot of those pictures sitting at the lunch counter and the mustard and all of that. And I I really want people to understand, especially the younger ones, to know that this wasn't about getting a burger and a large Coke. Um, This was way, way more than that. This was about black voter suppression. This was about um, discrimination in employment and housing practices. Um, And that's probably the legacy that I would have with Dr. King and how we kept all that on track. Um, I am a bit disheartened to know that here we are 50 years later and we are still fighting some of the same fights, Mm -hmm. um, some of the same issues. Um, But I think you would have no arguments that it is better now than it was then. Jim, I like the way you put that. It was more than Biggie Fries. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right, we're gonna gonna have to take a short break. Uh, You're (laughs) listening to Noon Edition, and we're talking about the year 1968 and how uh, politically and socially (laughs) volatile that year was in this nation's history. You're listening to Noon Edition. We will be right back.
4: (laughs) From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber online at Smithville.com and IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUnews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live and You can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald Times and my guests today are Jim Sims. uh, He's a member of the Bloomington City Council and also the Monroe County NAACP president. John McCluskey, Professor Emeritus of African American African Diaspora Studies at uh, Indiana University. And he was uh, teaching in Birmingham in 1968, which is the topic of our program today, 1968. And also Ray Bumar is with us. He's joining us by phone from Indianapolis. He is the, an author and the senior editor of the Indiana Historical Society Press. If you want to join us on the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at org, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. We're gonna move on from uh, Dr. King in just a minute, but I do want to ask about the role of black women in the civil rights movement. Jim?
3: Well, thank you, and we were talking a little bit, and. Uh, Uh, what I mentioned is that uh, a person that never really got talked about much um, during the movement was Miss Coretta Scott King um, and all that she did in order to hold the family together, um, the children. Um, And obviously, there was a, I I would call it a government conspiracy um, in order to discredit Dr. King, um, some of the things Herbert Hoover did. Um, I even think even though the media in some cases was pretty positive, it was also very negative. Um, so much like uh, Miss um, Michelle Obama um, during this, this current time, um, I think these women are overlooked on, on the glue that they provide to the family units and to that structure, um, while the husbands of course are out and putting their lives
2: on the line and, and, and struggling a bit. Mm-hmm. Women were very powerful agents oh, yes. in the civil rights movement. Uh, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, yes. the name, the list is very, very long. Um, we tend to Rosa think Parks. of Rosa, Par- Rosa Parks. Okay. The interesting thing about Rosa Parks that we don't know is that uh, she was a civil rights advocate and worker before she became the Rosa Parks that we know. Uh, she had attended the Highland School in uh, Tennessee for uh, several years, and uh, she was um, wise to the notions of, um, of community organization. So women were, in some ways, the bedrock of, uh, of, of the civil rights movement, and I'm glad that we brought that up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very, very important.
0: All right, I wanna move on to, uh, to June. Uh, Ray, June, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, can you set that scene?
1: Well, uh, in California, uh, Kennedy was campaigning against Eugene McCarthy. Those two were battling each other out for the various primaries that were available uh, and trying to, you know, win the Democratic presidential nomination. Kennedy uh, squeaked out a narrow victory. Uh, I think it was June 5th uh, in the California primary. Uh, he was, you know, continuing his campaign, uh, but leaving uh, by the uh, kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel. He was... Uh, shot and mortally wounded by Sirhan Sirhan. He eventually died from, from the shooting and really put uh, the Democratic nomination in, in play again. And at the uh, convention, uh, of course, eventually Hubert Humphrey, who was vice president under uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, won uh, the nomination. But there was, of course, uh, a lot of violence associated at the Democratic convention in Chicago. Uh, Richard Daley and the Chicago police uh, battled in the streets with uh, student protesters, and it's always kind of ironic. Uh, you wonder what if. I uh, historians are not good at that. We're better <laughs> at explaining what actually happened and what it might have happened. But you know, what if Kennedy had not had not been killed? What if he'd gone to the convention as a strong candidate? Uh, would there have been that many student protesters there? Uh, would there have been that much violence? Um, we'll never know, but we do know that there was, and it harmed, I think, immeasurably, uh, the Democratic's chances that year mm-hmm. in their race against uh, Richard Nixon, the Republican uh, candidate.
0: Okay, Ray, you said you uh, like to deal on what happened, not what if, but would Bobby Kennedy have won?
1: Um John Bartlow Martin, who I've written about, was a key advisor to uh, uh, Robert Kennedy in Indiana, a journalist and speechwriter for numerous Democratic presidential candidates, uh, posits the theory that, yes, Kennedy would have gone to Chicago, would have gotten the nomination, and would have gone on to defeat Richard Nixon in the '68 election. I'm doubtful about that. Oh, okay. I agree with mainly with a lot of <laughs> other Kennedy advisors who say that It was, you know, a 50-50 shot at him winning the nomination at all uh, at the convention. You know, while he was in this tense battle with Eugene McCarthy, Hubert Humphrey was uh, going around the country piling up delegates without entering any of the primaries, you know, going to big city bosses, uh, caucuses, and piling up delegate after delegate. So he was a strong candidate uh, to win the nomination. So it's uncertain if, you know, if Kennedy would even have gotten the nomination if he had lived.
0: Okay. We're going to go to uh, the phones. We have two phone calls, and Bob is first. Bob's from Bloomington. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah. We're going to go to... Uh, yeah, Bob, are you there? Bob
1: is first. Bob's from hey, uh, hello. Yeah,
0: Bob, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah Hi. Uh, Yeah, my question is uh, what was going on in Bloomington, uh, in the city, and on the campus at the time. I do know that there were very radical uh, faculty and student groups. There were a lot of protests. There was actually a lot of surveillance of the protests. And it would be interesting
3: for Bob, I don't know if you were here in town or Jim was in town, but
1: if you can't talk about it, would be interesting that people want to call in and talk about what was going on on campus and uh, in the city itself at that time.
0: Uh, yeah, I actually wasn't here at that time, and, I, you know, Ray may have some insights into it. I would recommend a book by Greg Dawson about Bloomington in 1968 that was published um, last year. Talks about what was going on on campus and what was going on even in the, the high school scene. Um, so Bloomington was a, was a very interesting place, and there are a lot of people who are in very uh, key positions in Bloomington and around now who were growing up during that time. And, uh, yeah, if any of them are out there, um, they could give us a call and talk to us about that. Ray, do you have any uh, sense of what was happening on campuses in Indiana?
1: I was not in too young for that, and I uh, <laughs> don't really know a lot about it. I know there was, it uh, seemed like, daily protests in Dunmeadow, uh, looking back at old yearbook photos when I was a student at, at IU. I went through the old Arbutuses, and there was uh, various factions of students, some working within the system, some wanting to blow, blow the whole thing up. Uh, but for the most part, there were peaceful protests, if I remember correctly.
0: All right. Well, I know I I did read the book by Greg Dawson, and I do know that you know there were the president's office was taken over, and I think the ROTC building was taken over, and there were there were a lot of things going on in Bloomington at that time. Greg, the author at the time, was a, a high school senior. He was uh, he graduated from South or from Bloomington High, I should say, in 1968. So, all right, Bob. Thanks for your question. And if we can get some people talking about that, that would be great. All right, we have a phone call from Mike from Bloomington. Mike?
5: Yes, I'm here.
0: Yeah, go go right ahead.
5: Um, I have a somewhat different view on things. I was an undergraduate at Stanford in 68. Um I started my religious objective service, 68 to 70, at the IU Medical Center, hmm. um, and then wound up teaching foreign policy. But um, one thing I want to mention is the fact that uh, the Black Panther Party at least when I knew it, and I was a student volunteer for the East Palo Alto Project of the Black Panther Party in 1966, uh, when I was terrible at it, Uh, but be that as it may, um, it was heavily supported by progressive whites in the area. If you go to pictures of the demonstrations, you will frequently see the white demonstrators outnumbering the black, and uh, so this idea that seems to come that the black panther party was highly separatist um, simply doesn't wash i've always felt that the the reason the panthers were destroyed was that it was identified as being a really dangerous political organization and was targeted the, um and then uh, the parallels i want to mention are one that the first issue of the black panther newspaper covers the death of a black man in oakland at the hands of the police and i wish to point out that the way this thing is reported, it could have been printed on the front page of the New York Times uh, this year. It's ex- the, that's exactly the same. That really hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to point out is that um, the Vietnam War was not an anomaly. The United States has a problem that we do foreign policy based on preconceptions, which may or may not have much to do with what is actually going on in the world. Um, in vietnam uh, we really misunderstood the situation in vietnam and a lot of it was driven by um, our relationship with france um, in particular giving vietnam back to the french in nineteen forty nine and the same thing is true today where president trump decides to move the embassy to uh... jerusalem ignoring the fact that this is not allowed by the u.n charter because uh... occupying powers cannot take over ownership of property, of territory that they have occupied by war. And uh, the main reason for that uh, decision was simply to satisfy his domestic base. So there are strong parallels, and um, in many ways, I see things really haven't changed a whole lot in terms of some of the major driving forces. Thank you.
0: All right, Mike. A lot of things that uh, our panelists can comment on. Ray, I'm gonna ask you first. Do you uh, have a comment?
1: Uh, not really. I do have a comment. I, I just remembered, uh, uh, if you want to look at uh, the student protests at IU, what was going on in Bloomington during the 60s, there is an excellent book from Indiana University Press by Marianne Weinkoop called Dissent in the Heartland, the 60s at Indiana University. Hmm. So I think it really delves into the issues now in the Vietnam War, but, uh, you know, uh, women's rights, uh, racism, sexism, the issues of, you know, uh, dorms and who could visit, you know, male dorms or female dorms, so uh, I want to uh, recommend that book highly for those looking at more information about what was going on in Bloomington in the 60s.
0: All right, Jim, what about the relationship with police departments?
3: What about them? Well,
0: uh, (laughs) I mean, he he mentioned, uh, you know, Mike mentioned the the Oakland cover and said it could have been on the New York Times today. Well, and
3: the first thing I I want to do is thank Mike for his call. Um, And I would disagree somewhat with some of his approach. Um, um, The Black Panther Party, at that time, uh, did speak of some separatism, Um, but I want people to understand, at least in my view, that that is not anti-white. Um, and I think anyone, in particularly those of us that are black, understand that you, it's hard to make decent progress without having a multicultural approach. Um, there's just simply not enough of us to, to, to affect that kind of change. Um, and I will go further to say that um, back then, and the Black Panther Party had a strong influence on local um, populations and neighborhoods, it did a lot of things that folks didn't know about with helping those folks, so they had their following. Um, but leaders like Huey Newton and Bobby Seale did, in fact, um, advocate self-defense principles, um, some separatism, that sort of thing. So, uh, But police officers, um, part of uh, uh, the civil rights movement had to do with reform of not only police departments, but of the criminal justice system itself. Um, and even today, we still have some glaring disparities um, with regard to arrests. Um, incarcerations, um, s- some economic, financial things with regard to posting bail or, or that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, so we, so we still struggle with those. Um, I think we've still come a long way. Um, we, a lot of folks preach diversity, um, and, and I think that's important. But I think other things such as anti-bias training, um, um, refuting profiling, these sorts of things um, that are racially racially motivated I think is what's important.
0: And I think the point Mike was probably making and that I was trying to get to is that you know we have the Black Lives Matter movement yes. that's based primarily on you know African American men in particular being being shot um, by authorities.
2: So. Mm-hmm. Many, um, and Jim is right on point with this, uh, many um, adults my age, older, slightly younger, If you get them in a relaxed social situation, every one of them has had some kind of um, run-in with police. They've been mistaken for someone. They've been uh, undergraduates at Ohio State, as my uncle was, uh, just trying to break up a fight, and he was thrown in jail. Everyone has that sort of um, story to tell. So I think that the whole notion of stereotyping, the whole notion of people who are uh, emotionally prepared... To deal with with, with armed, armed people who are emotionally prepared to handle stress is, uh, is very, very difficult. It's one thing to talk about Bull Connor, and that was surely totally dangerous in, in Birmingham, Alabama. But when you begin to get to northern cities, small cities all over the country, and it's becomes a, a thing going on and on and on, uh, then we have to stop and take a long look at training, yes. a long look at psychological stress tests given periodically to police officers. Uh, looking at the ranking of, of African-Americans or people of color in the uh, hierarchy of the police department. Uh, there are a lot of things that we have to inspect, but uh, uh, I think a lot, a lot goes back to training, but it, it has not changed enough. And This is not to say they're good people. St. Louis is a, and Ferguson, even now, is actually a model place uh, for trying to deal with these situations, but it's gonna be an ongoing, ongoing conversation.
0: I, uh, maybe I may be wrong, but I'm going to to ask, both of you have served on the um, Bloomington Public Safety Board, have you not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, which oversees the local police department.
3: Right. That's right. true. Right. Um, and, and I'll quickly throw mm-hmm. this out, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we have heard uh, of often the blue code, I, I think is the term, with police officers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even remember back in my hometown, and we were happy um, that a person would... Make it not only on the police force, but become a sergeant. But I think at that point in time, back then, and maybe to, I think to a certain degree now, that the civil rights situation um, in many cases took a back seat to the blue code, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I often imagine what position did that put a, 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 an officer of color, African American officer, when? I'm witnessing things that are socially unjust, but at the same time, I have this obligation not to squeal, if you will, <laughs> on my fellow officers, mm-hmm. um, and I don't envy any of them uh, yeah, right. to be in that position.
0: We have a phone call. This one comes from Lori from Bloomington. Lori, go ahead.
1: Yes, I just wanted to say about the kindness the Black Panthers. I'm a white woman, 82 years old. Uh, I was 30 at the time, and the Black Panthers, I had my church, had an after-school program in which I taught. And uh, the Black Panthers fed my children for breakfast Mm -hmm. so that they at least had that good meal. And I had an elderly friend at the time who um, could not get out. So I walked down to the Black Panthers' office, and I walked in and asked them if they could include her in their food program. And they were absolutely kind, polite, warm. Mm -hmm. I loved them very much.
0: Well, thank you for that memory. We really appreciate that call.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the goodness, they're still good today. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Our phone calls, we have about six minutes to go if you want to slip in another call. 812 811 toll-free 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, 1968. 50 years ago, we had uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos stripped of their medals after raising their fists in protest, it was on October 17th, 1968, they were at the Olympic Games in Mexico City. Um, We have Colin Kaepernick today, who kneels. Is this kind of the same issue,
3: Um, Jim? I I think so, and in between there, and if we all remember, when Muhammad Ali won the gold medal in boxing, and I, the the year escapes me. Um, but he came back to Louisville, where he was from, and still looking at the mistreatment of, of fellow blacks within and through his gold medal in the Ohio River. Um, and I'm not so sure if you're a non, people that are more than non-athletes uh, remember or recall that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, I, I do. I think um. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, his, his, grievance, if you will, has absolutely nothing to do with the military, the United, the, the flag, the national anthem. It has to do with what we're talking about today, which is the maltreatment of people of color in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the way we look at it. And how it's morphed to where it is today is beyond me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of protest,
0: uh, again, had its... Uh, One of the most visible protests like that was this in In
2: 1968. And and that's gonna continue. I think it's a wise generation of athletes now who realize they're gladiators and they can be traded at any point and they owe a duty to the larger society. And they are not, uh, as as Jim has pointed out very well, not just being anti-patriotic, they're being patriotic to the core. And one of the core values of this country is freedom of expression where you do not harm or degrade uh, uh, other people. You just uh, have the freedom to, to ask for high higher principles. And that's what these athletes are going on. So the genie's out of the bottle. It's going to continue. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And if I can add real quick, sure. th- that brings more issues. This is a, a socioeconomic issue with the owners versus the players. Um, I think many of the, the players of color in particular, African American players who make up the majority of uh, uh, the employees, if you will, are now regretting their choice of not Joining Colin Kaepernick in that stance overall, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think if we had to do it all over again, it would be much bigger, a more of a mass protest. Mm -hmm. All
0: right, Uh, Ray, we've talked a lot about uh, various parts of 1968. Um, If unless you can go anywhere you want, but I want to go up to November and the election. So Richard Nixon was elected president. Um, What you know what. What symbolism did you get out of, uh, or would, should we take out of out, out of Nixon winning that election that year with all the turmoil that was going on in the United States?
1: Well, of course, you have to remember that there were three candidates in that election. Not only was there Richard Nixon, there was Hubert Humphrey for the Democrats and George Wallace, yeah. uh, the segregationist governor, yeah. <laughs> uh, where Anne is a third-party candidate and captured enough votes. And percentage of the votes that might have, uh, you know, swayed the election uh, to Humphrey's cause, and that Humphrey was coming on uh, at the end, uh, and it was a very, very narrow uh, victory uh, for Nixon. And it was one of those what ifs, you know, what if um, they had uh, the Chicago convention was supposed to be earlier, but they delayed it to uh, help celebrate Lyndon Johnson's birthday and if they had had that lost time would they have been able to narrow that gap at the end and you know some of those issues reaching out to what were known back then as white backlash voters uh you know spring spring to mind the efforts from the 2016 um, election as well so a lot of those issues are are still with us uh, today and i take from that election i wonder you know will the black life matters activists of the day Go into politics like a lot of the uh, radical activists from the 60s did. Uh, I always remember Bill Crawford, who uh, Indianapolis politician of, of of renown, a longtime member of our state legislature. You know, he was at the Kennedy speech in Indianapolis on April 4th, part of a Black Power group called the Radical Action Program, and he was inspired by what he experienced in the 60s to go into politics to make a difference in people's lives. And I wonder if a lot of the activists from the Black Lives Matter movement might be moving in that direction today.
0: All right, I'm gonna go very quickly to the telephone and ask Wendy if you can, in like 15 or 20 seconds, give us your memory that you'd like.
1: Okay, my husband and I were in Paris in 68, tangentially participating in the student revolution there. and. During that time, Kennedy King and Malcolm X were assassinated, and we felt that we had to return to the States to participate in what we thought would be a very constructive revolution in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so we saw the United States from afar and came home to our cities where we could no longer walk in a lot of neighborhoods that I had been perfectly comfortable in, in Baltimore and Philadelphia, because of the riots. So I am living now hoping so much for the idealism and activism of that period to be revived right now.
0: All right. Thank you, Wendy. Thanks for that memory. And we are out of time. I really appreciate our guests today, Jim Sims, John McCluskey, and Ray Boomauer. For Mike Pashkash, our engineer, and Angelo Batista, our producer, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.